welcome to the show. I'm Jordan Harbinger. On The Jordan Harbinger Show, we decode the stories, secrets, and skills of the world's most fascinating people. And if you're new to the show, we have in-depth conversations with people at the top of their game. Astronauts, entrepreneurs, spies and psychologists, even the occasional North Korean defector, and I chose that to label because we will link that in the show notes. We had Charles Ruan, who escaped from North Korea not once, but twice. And if you haven't heard that, you'll want to go back and listen to that one. Each episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show turns our guests' wisdom into practical advice that you can use to build a deeper understanding of how the world works and become a better critical thinker. This is Stereo Sundays, number two. It's live in the Stereo app. If you're listening to us in the Jordan Harbinger podcast feed, we are live Fridays during the month of November. The next one is gonna be Friday, November 20th, 2 p.m. Pacific time. Go and grab the Stereo app. Today, we are talking about the four years that Gabriel and I traveled to and wrote about North Korea. We were in the country numerous times. We'll talk about what the country was actually like, what we took away from our experiences there. This is the second episode, again, of Stereo Sundays, this little experiment we're doing sponsored by the Stereo app. We'll be live again Friday, November 20th and Friday, November 27th at 2 p.m. Pacific time. So download the Stereo app for Android or iPhone. Follow along with us live next time. I think this is a lot of fun to do it live. There's questions. You can ask questions of us at any time. We'll be listening to them at the end. Use the little question bubble at the bottom of the Stereo app. You can record a message and we'll play it and we'll answer your question. And it doesn't have to be about North Korea. It can be about anything relatively so that you think Gabe and I are qualified to answer or you want us to take a stab at. So don't worry if you don't have a North Korea question. It doesn't have to be about that at all. And if you're wondering how we managed to book all the great guests we have on the Jordan Harbinger Show, a lot of that comes from the networking skills that we have built. We have a course on networking that is free over at jordanharbinger.com slash course. It's called Six Minute Networking because it doesn't take that much time each day. And most of the guests on the show subscribe to the course or contribute to the course. Come join us. You'll be in smart company. Again, we'll have Q&A at the end of this, about 15, 20 minutes or so. Just use the stereo app to ask away. All right, here we go. Now, Gabe, this is a a very random topic for the Jordan Harbinger show. A lot of people are going to be surprised that we're doing an episode on North Korea, but it also happens to be one of the most requested topics that I think that we get for the show. People are always asking me to talk about my time in North Korea, and most people probably don't know that you actually came with me. Was it the first time I went? That's right. Yep. In 2011, I believe it was, uh, was it April 2011? I think we went in the summer, right? right? Or was it summer? Maybe it was summer, late summer. Yeah. Yeah. That was a a literal trip. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So 2011, Gabe and I went to North Korea for the first time, and we ended up doing several more trips from 2011 to 2016. So this is before the U.S. banned travel to the DPRK, which is also North Korea. So if you hear us say DPRK and you're like, what are you talking about? That's what North Korea is, Democratic People's Republic of Korea. Notice how whenever you have to lean into whether something is democratic or belongs to the people, that is the most restrictive (laughs) society ever, right? Like People's Republic of China, oh, sounds friendly, Ah, restrictive. Democratic People's Republic means you can't vote, you have no choice, and you could go to prison for life for sitting on a picture of someone. So, yeah, it just has a better ring than the undemocratic leaders republic. of Right, exactly. God King Republic of (laughs) Korea. And North Korea is a very unusual place in many, many ways. We ended up getting a very unique glimpse into the place. We saw things and had conversations most Westerners never get access to. And even Westerners that were inside North Korea before on tours I still think, I still know we had better access than many slash most of them because going back multiple times gets you better access. The guides trust you a little bit more. You get to see different things. You can make your own itinerary. They figure out you're not a CIA spy at some point and they talk a little bit more freely. I mean, it's just a different experience every single time that you go. Of course, there are some constants like them trying to feed you the same fish every single day for a week. Uh, But we'll get into the food and things like that that we had there as well. Looking back, Gabriel, these trips were some of the most formative experiences, at least of my life. I agree. They were just wild. And even now, you and I are talking about how these trips informed so much of what we do and how we see the world. And it's a unique comparison that most people don't have. So when someone says like, oh, this is terrible, this is gonna happen, or like, we should do this policy. We're like, well, they do that in this other place and it's horrible. So you have, there are pitfalls. It's just a, 
It's a measuring stick most people never get to see. So we thought we'd make our second Stereo Sunday episode about the five years that we spent traveling through the least visited country on Earth. And is it really the least visited? It has to be. It's definitely top five or ten, but sometimes people say it's the least visited. I'm sure there are like the Andaman Islands have never been visited by outside Yeah, the Sentinel or, Islands or something where like outsiders yeah, aren't able to go. Yeah, where like you step on the beach and somebody harpoons you the second you step off the boat. Yeah. If you discount those, if you ignore those countries, North Korea is probably the least or one of the least visited countries. I think when we were going there in 2011, Jordan, I feel like the number was what in the low, like 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 people a year from the outside world, if you don't count visitors from China, I think it was like 2,500 Westerners a year or something, something like, like that. that. That sounds right. And and the reason we don't count numbers from China is because China actually has a lot of almost like discount tours where you can get on a bus at a moment's notice without a visa pretty much and hop on and just drive into North Korea from China or jump on a boat and slide into North Korea. And it's kind of like a, what should we do this weekend? Let's go to North Korea. It's right over there. I've never seen it. It's kind of weird. And so you'll get these tour agencies that only take Chinese people. And a lot of Chinese tourists go there because it's really cheap. In a way, it's kind of like Mexico is to the United States where We'll go there and you can go there and stay at the Four Seasons and stay at a really dope beach hotel. Or you can go, hey, I'm a teenager. I'm on spring break. I've got 600 bucks and a plane ticket. Can I go to Mexico? Mm -hmm. And it's like, yeah, stay in a youth hostel. Go to this crappy part of the beach where they have 40 cent beers and get wasted and get arrested a couple times and then thrown back into the sand. So North Korea is kind of like that for the Chinese yeah. without the party. North Korea is basically, it's the Cabo of Far East Asia. Maybe, yeah, maybe even the Cancun, right? Without the party. Without the partying, without a lot of the free. Yeah, it's more gulags, less parties. Exactly. It's sort of a depressing uh, Punta Dasta or something. <laughs> 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 but let me rewind the tape a little bit. You know, in 2011, one day I picked up the phone, you were calling me. And I remember literally you you were like, hey, man, this is going to sound really weird. But uh, I want to go to North Korea. Do you want to come with me? <laughs> and I'm pretty sure it took me about 10 seconds to be like, absolutely, yes. Then I spent a few days googling it and figuring out if it was actually possible, if it was legal, if it was safe, all those things that you want to know before you go to the DPRK. But I was initially just totally intrigued by the invitation. I know you had been doing research on it for at least a year before we went. It was your idea, and you had found out that it is totally possible to go, even though back then most of us didn't know that it was possible to go to North Korea, at least not legally. Mm -hmm. But it is legal. It was legal until the travel ban a couple of years ago. Basically, the requirements are, are very simple. You have to have a an official visa from the North Korean government, which you can pretty much only get by going through one of the handful of licensed travel agencies. The biggest one being Courier Tours. They're based in Beijing. They're great at what they do. They've been doing it the longest of all the travel agencies. They ended up becoming our main travel partner when we went back and forth. But if you have that visa and you can get yourself to Beijing, you can basically go to North Korea no problem back in 2011. And then I think that ended in 2016. So that was the invitation originally from you. And, and I have to admit that I was very ignorant about the country the first time. I mean, I did my homework and I did some basic research because I wanted to know about the country before we got there. I didn't know any, anything that we ended up learning or all the, you know, we went down a huge rabbit hole after that first trip and got really nerdy about the country. <laughs> but our understanding of it was very basic before we went. It was really going there. That was the the most eye-opening experience, I think, of the whole trip was just stepping foot in the country and realizing that we were in a very, very unusual place. Yeah, the way I got the idea I'd been reading weird news about places like Turkmenistan and North Korea, just reading the BBC while I was in law school. And I had a friend, I still have a friend named Sailor Joe, and he travels all over the world and he goes to all these crazy places and he rescues people from hurricanes and stuff. He's just an adventurous guy. And he said, I'm really interested in reading about this. And I would send him these articles like Kim Jong-il renames the calendar months or, you know, stuff like that. And I'd just start sort of sending him these articles and he'd go, you know, I'm going to go check that place out. Mm -hmm. And I said, is it legal? And he goes, not right now, but the rumor is they're going to open it up. And then like two years later, I get this ICQ message or, you know, whatever, <laughs> AOL instant messenger message, you know, to throw it back. And he said, hey, I'm thinking about going in May. Do you want to go? And I said, I don't think I can. I'm in law school. Like, I don't think I can make it happen. I'll go next time. And he goes, you know, I don't know if there's going to be a next time because it's North Korea. You just never know. And I said, you know what? You're right. So he ended up postponing his trip, thankfully, but we did end up going, and he ended up going, and I just, I remember looking back, 
We bought tours from Corio Tours, and we'll link to them in the show notes because they're a great company to work with, British company based in China. But the first thing that I remember is just reading all these crazy stories on BBC.com and thinking, none of these are probably real. Like, these are exaggerated. This place can't be that bad. It's just going to be one of those pet places where journalists like to write about it, but they don't have all the facts. And it turned out to be far more bizarre than any of the news stories could ever have explained. So it started off as curiosity and intrigue, and later it became this real desire to understand the place and share it with people. We talked about it on the podcast, on old episodes, we blogged about it, and there really was almost like a movement among show fans to just like, we all want to go there, we all want to check it out. I brought a bunch of show fans, but you know, Gabe, I have to ask, a lot of people ask us, hey, didn't you have any conflict about going? You know, you're supporting this horrible place, yeah, you go once, maybe you didn't get it, but after you go and you really do a deep dive, isn't there something sketch about giving a country that has nukes and uses them to threaten people and throws people in gulags? Like, why are you supporting this? Is it not tacit support for the regime when you go to a place like this? Yeah, I think it's a totally fair question. It's one that you and I have talked about many, many times over the years. Look, it's obviously a bizarre place to want to visit. I have had people ask me point blank, would you visit Nazi Germany just because it was interesting? And, you know, that's an interesting question. And they're making a fair point. The conclusion I've come to is this. The money that you spend in North Korea as a tourist, which honestly, even if you went buck wild in that country for two weeks, would still be in like the low American US dollars, like low thousands, I would say, is like a mm -hmm. pretty liberal estimate. That is a drop in the water <laughs> for any country, but it's a drop in the water for this particular country. It's not like you're going to be propping up an entire nuclear program or funding a gulag somewhere if you spend a little bit of money in the bar at the hotel in Pyongyang, you know what I mean? So just in a very practical sense, I don't happen to believe that being a tourist in North Korea is a tacit support of the regime. As long as your intention in going there is to learn and understand, as opposed to like, I want to go there because I'm dying to like climb the, the hierarchy of the government in North Korea and try to finagle <laughs> my way into some advisory position so I can cozy up to technocrats who are doing all this horrible stuff. And I want to be celebrated for that as like the one Westerner who actually believes that the Kim family is, you know, mm -hmm. the reincarnation of God, and they're doing God's work on earth and Korea, you know, like, that's a craziness, very, unless you're crazy, right? That's a very different proposal. I mean, I think if you're going there as a foreign tourist, because you're curious, because other people are curious about going, and you're leading them for a week at a time. And your intention there is just to grow and learn as a human being and not to try to express some support or in, inadvertently help them in some way then I think you're good. But it's a fair question. And honestly, it's, you know, you and I have thought about that a lot. I think it really comes down to what's your intention in going if you're being curious, and if you're learning, great, that does not equal support. Yeah, I think also, the amount that I've talked about North Korea and described how it's a threat, realistically, what can be done to engage them, that has outweighed the amount of money spent in country. And the right. people that I've brought there who are now voting and talking about it and donating to relief organizations that get refugees out and things like that. It's just a far, it's a very different scenario than going there. It, when you go there, you're not going to nightclubs and drinking and partying and spending a lot of money. You really are sightseeing. And so it's a very much an educational experience in the, the truest sense. So you get your visas through a licensed travel agency. We got, kept to, we got to Beijing, and there was an orientation. Gabe, do you remember this? Oh, yes. There's always an orientation before any trip yeah. to North Korea. Yeah, that's one of the highlights. Before you even go, you sit down, and whoever is arranging your visa will sit you in a group and say, very bluntly, here's what you can do. Here's what you can't do. Here are the rules. Here's Korean etiquette. Here are the thing, you know, the practices, the customs that you need to know. What I remember about those, those orientations specifically was them being super blunt about the fact that you cannot steal anything in North Korea. You cannot walk down the street and proselytize. You can't pick a fight with somebody about who actually won the Korean War or who was right. You can't, for example, fold newspapers with the leaders' faces on them because that is a crime in North Korea. And you will, at the very least, get a stern talking to and could find yourself in a little bit of more hot water. Those are the highlights from that orientation session. What do you remember? You're definitely right about those things. I do also remember they said, don't bring anything that looks like maps mm. and don't bring anything that has a GPS on it. So if your camera has a GPS on it, they were like, leave it in the tour office because they- Or cover it up with a sticker. Or cover it up with a sticker, which they're probably onto by now. Mm -hmm. But back then, GPS enabled cameras were pretty new. And also, 
this is no longer the case or was was not the case last time I went. But in the beginning when we started going, you weren't allowed to bring your phone. That's right. At all. You had to leave it at the airport. Right. So you'd turn it off. They'd give you like a literal piece of tissue paper. That was your receipt. It <laughs> had some Korean on it. And, you know, you'd turn in your iPhone. But I mean, I remember going there and they had never seen iPads. Mm-hmm. They had no idea that cameras had GPS enabled on them. They were blown away by iPhones. And this is 2011. Like people had seen iPads. People had seen iPhones yeah. everywhere but North Korea. But they were absolutely just totally mind boggled because they didn't really have mobile phones. If memory serves, there was no mobile phone network the first year we went. Yeah. Or if it was, it was pretty bare bones and they were using flip phones for sure. Yeah. I think they're the phones they use now are probably produced in the country. Actually, I think they're or they might be produced in China, but the software, the OS is Korean based. But absolutely, I remember between 2011 and 2012, there was a huge difference in the way that they responded to the stuff that we brought into the country. Mm -hmm. The first time they looked through every book, they checked out my iPad, they looked at the apps to make sure I didn't have anything sketchy or threatening on there. The next time they practically waved me through. So something big happened between 2011 and 2012. You know, the other thing I remember about those sessions is, um, you know, just how clear it was that you have to go so far out of your way to get in trouble in North Korea. Yes, they have a ton of rules, but the rules are so explicit. You know, they like they tell you to your face, like, absolutely do not do this. You know, here are the things that are that are not okay. So that's very interesting because when you see the stories in the news about people who get in trouble in North Korea, you know, it seems so scary and it seems like they're very eager to lock anybody up who does something that they don't like. And the weird thing about Korea is that it's very hard to get in trouble once you're there. But if you do get in trouble, the punishment is wildly disproportionate to the crime. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you think about like Otto Warmbier, that guy who got, I think, put into a prison camp for stealing a propaganda poster from the hotel, like he didn't deserve any of that for stealing a poster. But they told him from the start, you absolutely can't steal stuff from North Korea. Like, that's not OK. And the same thing applies to the guy who was handing out Bibles. It applies to like the people who pick fights with generals at historical sites about who was really responsible for the war or whatever it is. It's just very interesting to me that the people who do get in trouble kind of seem to be looking for it. And I'm not defending them. I'm not defending the people in Korea who inflict those punishments. I'm just saying that that's an unusual thing about being there as a foreigner. You mentioned no folding newspapers with the leaders' faces on them. On the airplane, of course, you get magazines and you get newspapers and they they're only have the leader's face on them. They only have, <laughs> there isn't like, hey, this happened in sports on the front page, the second page. No, it's everything is military or the leader. And I remember, I didn't fold it, but I got a magazine that had probably at the time Kim Jong-il. So not Kim Jong-un. Mm-hmm. I think we were still in the Kim Jong-il era. Had a big photo of him and I laid it on the table in the hotel room and I had some change from China, like coins. And I threw it in the ashtray and then I put the ashtray and I had ended up somehow moving it on top of the magazine with the leader's face on it. And when I came back to my room, my hotel room, everything in the hotel room was made up, but the magazine was gone. Mm. It wasn't the ashtray got moved off of it. It wasn't that everything was stacked up neat. It was straight up gone. They took it out of the room. And I found that weird because... The magazine itself is not valuable. They're everywhere. They're in the lobby. They're on the plane. You can't get rid of these magazines. They're just everywhere. And of course, they didn't throw it away. There's no chance that's happening, right? That you don't put things with the leader's face on it in the garbage. So I think they literally took it out and they were like, this guy's going to get himself in trouble with this thing. So I'm going to move it out of his possession. Oh, interesting. That's my theory. So I thought that was kind of interesting. I also happen to remember in the subsequent years after our first trip, I I was leading some groups of tourists to North Korea. And I remember a woman on one of my trips accidentally folded the newspaper and put it in her suitcase. Mm. And when they went to clean the room, they noticed it. And she did not get in huge trouble. But one of our tour guides, her tour guides, pulled her aside and they had to have a very discreet, polite chat about it. You know, I think that's usually what happens. They take that stuff seriously. So let's talk a little bit about what happens once you get there. So you you fly from Beijing into Pyongyang. The flight, if I recall, is about an hour and a half. Mm -hmm. You land in Pyongyang. You go through that customs process we just talked about, the security check. Take a bus from the airport to one of the handful of tourist hotels that are usually for foreigners. Usually they put people in the Yanggakdo Hotel, which is still one of my favorite places in North Korea. How do you describe the Yanggakdo Hotel, Jordan? It's like... It's freaking bizarre. So first of all, you get on this bus at the airport. 
You know when you land at an airport, you look around, you see all these other planes, and then you see, like, the jet bridge come out. When you land in North Korea, you see absolutely frickin' nothing. Big old field. yeah, just Big like old one. empty field. And it's not even good tarmac. It's like a frickin' playground on a school that's several years old. The runways are probably in decent shape, or the one that international flights land on is, but everything else is totally wrecked. And when you get off the plane, all you see is a minimum three to five story tall picture of the leaders. And there's one for each one. If I recall correctly, it was Kim Il-sung smiling down at you when you arrived. I think now it's Kim Jong-il and Kim Il-sung now. They put another one up. Yeah, it could be both. And I also know that the year or two after we went that first time, they built a new airport. And it's now like this glass and steel structure. It's much less weird. Oh. That first time we stepped off the plane, and that's the only thing you see. No other planes, no terminals, no transportation vehicle, none of that. Just a huge long distance between your plane on the tarmac and this like, it looks like a movie set of like a Western of just the faces painted onto the three-story high building. And then you just basically walk through this shoddy structure to get to security and then you're out. Yeah. So yeah, that that was one of like the vivid memories in my mind is that image. And then you get to the hotel. Right. You get on a bus, you drive to the hotel. There's no street lights on the way to the hotel. So we were driving and I was like, where are we? There's nothing I can't see ahead of us. And you know, your headlights would see people just walking in the dark in the absolute pitch black along this road because they had to go somewhere and there's no street lights and there's no flashlights and there's no batteries. So you're just sort of lighting the way and driving by. You get to the hotel and you pass a military or police checkpoint. The Yangokdo Hotel is on a freaking island in a river in the middle of Pyongyang. So you're essentially on an Alcatraz hotel Mm -hmm. and you cannot leave that island without permission, not even permission, without the guides with you. You can't walk around the city on your own. There's a gate, there's a fence. Unless you plan on going for a swim, you're not getting off the hotel grounds. And in fact, even if you go out the front door of the hotel, if you start walking down the driveway, the doorman will be like, no, no. where are you going? You're not allowed to do anything. That's on purpose, I'm sure. I mean, they put you on this like, Yangakto literally means, I believe, sheep's horn island. Mm. And it's like a sheep's horn that sticks into the Taedong River, which runs through Pyongyang. And they put you there because it's easy to know where all the foreigners are if they put you on a little island in the middle of the river. It's not nefarious. It's just easier for them, I think, to keep track of everybody and make sure you don't just wander out the front doors and end up in, like, I don't know, some underground restaurant for diplomats half a kilometer away. Yeah, exactly. Not that anybody would let you in anywhere <laughs> on your own anyways. And the Yangakto Hotel has all the things that you would expect from a ridiculously overblown Stalinist There's a bowling alley, there's karaoke, there's a dressmaker that makes suits in Korean, traditional Korean dress. There's, I don't know if there's a pool, I haven't seen one. There's definitely multiple restaurants, most of which are closed at any given time, multiple bars, there's a rooftop restaurant. Does it spin or did I just imagine that? That is absolutely correct. It's a revolving (laughs) restaurant. And that one is usually kind of open. It's like half open if there are people. And it slowly turns around, which is actually very cool because it gives you a glimpse of the entire city and you really get a sense of the scale. But yeah, it's funny. It's like that and a number of other things in North Korea are like kind of cheesy in a certain way. Like everything kind of has like a throwback, vaguely Soviet vibe. The revolving restaurant is like that. The karaoke lounge is like that. The casino and the spa and the basement of the hotel is kind of like that. You there's know, a like casino. There's... Oh my God, the casino. So the casino is like one room. And when you go in there, the dealer who is just like at any given time reading or something, you go in there and they're like, oh, you want to play like Baccarat or what? Baccarat, <laughs> I mean. And you're like, uh, I don't know. And the Chinese. You could also probably play Burt Baccarat if you want. Yeah, you, you could. <laughs> if you ever go in there and there's Chinese people in there, they're throwing down like $20,000 bets on this crappy, like dented table and they're doing like roulette. And stuff, and they're yelling, and the whole room is filled with smoke. And you're just like, this is the weakest casino, and yet people are throwing down sums of money in there that is just ridiculous. So that you can play like blackjack, I remember, and they were like, okay, and we, they just thought we were aliens because we were betting like five dollars or something. Whereas a lot of times these Chinese guys were really just throwing down like real big money in this really lame casino. And I I, I remember how filled with smoke it was. I also remember during our orientation, they said, look, a non-smoking room in North Korea is just a room that is not being smoked in at that particular point in time. (laughs) That's all that means. It is smoke everywhere. The other thing that really tripped me out about the Yangakdo Hotel, oh, and the karaoke room, missing the latter half of the alphabet. Like, they just lost (laughs) the book that had M through Z. 
So you can only go for the first half of the alphabet. Uh, is that why we kept? That's why we did a lot of like stuck with Britney Spears and Christina yeah. Aguilera. <laughs> yeah, because there's just nothing. There's nothing left in the backside of the book. Like they lost the DVDs, and then they were like, "Oh, I guess we can throw this book away with the numbers in it." Like we just don't have the rest of it. That was ridiculous. The other thing that really tripped me out about the Gangakto Hotel Spinning Restaurant was if you go up to the top and you're there after I think 9 p.m. Every light in the entire city of Pyongyang, except for your restaurant and the train station, goes out, with one exception. All of the statues of the leaders are still illuminated. And then after, I want to say, like 10 p.m. or midnight, I can't remember now, the restaurant lights stay on, and the train station lights go out, except all the propaganda signs that say, like, Korea's strong or whatever, and all the statues of leaders, those are illuminated 24-7. All the other lights go out. So if you're at home and you have your lights on, because you happen to have electricity and you happen to live in Pyongyang, you don't have power at night after that hour. You just have to go to bed. And that was bizarre to me because I remember going, what just happened? I just saw the lights go out, power failure. And then it was like every night at 9 p.m., same thing. And I realized, oh my God, they turn the power out just on everyone at that time. Like, you don't need electricity anymore. Go to bed. Yeah, and I think they we even found out that they rewired the grid or something to, like, prioritize electricity to certain sectors so that they could keep the lights on on those monuments, which is pretty mm-hmm. wild. Yeah, yeah. You know, as you're describing all of this, I'm remembering that feeling of landing in Pyongyang, like, for the first time. It's this feeling of, yeah, being off the grid, for sure, especially that first year when we couldn't bring phones. But really, it's that feeling of being somewhere you're not, quote unquote, supposed to be. Mm-hmm. You know, like you feel a bit, for lack of a better word, a bit naughty. <laughs> like you feel like yeah. you're not in danger. There's nobody who's coming after you. You're perfectly legal. Your status is fine. But you just kind of feel like you're someplace that everybody told you you're not supposed to be. And I remember be- that feeling being very intoxicating in a certain way. And it's not just because it's like, oh, cool, I'm in a place where my mom doesn't want me to be, which was actually kind of true, especially after that first trip. But it's really the feeling of being somewhere that is so beyond the pale of your normal life, like almost everything these days, especially because of technology and and just the way that Western culture has homogenized so much. It's one of the last few places where you truly feel that you are in some other dimension that is stuck in space and time to some degree. It's sort of like being in the 50s while also simultaneously being in the 80s, but then at the same time, you're in this totally alternate reality where the Confucianism and the Korean inheritance of thousands of years is merging with a very retrograde version of what the future could have been. And that's largely because of the Korean War and how it decimated the country and how they had to rebuild, but it's also because it's so close to the outside world. I just remember that weirdness of stepping foot into a place like that. Jordan, we should talk for a moment about how everybody who goes to Korea, every group is accompanied by at least one, usually two, government-appointed tour guides. These are people who are somewhere in between traditional tour guides and government minders, frankly. Their job is to guide tourists, but it's also to keep an eye on them, right? To make sure that they're not like wandering off or doing something they shouldn't do. And that dual role was very interesting. And it ends up being one of the best parts about traveling there because you actually get pretty close to these people. I do remember that. And I remember the tour guides being quite nice, but I also remember how weird it was that they, they're not scary, right? They're quite friendly and you're making a relationship with them, but they themselves seem to have a very strict set of rules. Yes. And they try to not let you necessarily see those rules, but if you cross the line, they absolutely will. And and when we've gone... Were you with me when we went on on that holiday and there were tons of different tour groups and some of them were just absolutely despised by the tour guides? Were you with me on that trip? No, I think that was the second one you did without me. Right, so I went on during the the 100th would-be birthday of the leader that had died like in 1994, right? So I went on, this is maybe 2012 or 2013, and there was a group of Europeans and they just hated these Europeans. And these Europeans would come back every day and go, they wouldn't let us take photos. They wouldn't let us go inside this. They wouldn't let us go do that. And I remember thinking, oh, we did all of those things. Mm. And so it really does depend on how much the guides like you and how much they trust you. And if you have somebody on your tour that won't stop taking photos of military officers or tanks, they can really lock you down. And there was a time when I brought somebody, I don't remember if you were on this trip or not, I had brought a guy once And he was such a pain in everyone's butt that they were like, you can't bring your camera. And then he didn't bring his camera and somehow he still managed to cause trouble. And they said, look, if you keep causing trouble, 
we're leaving you in the hotel tomorrow. And they meant it. Damn. And they don't just leave you in the hotel to like run around and do whatever you want because then you're gonna cause trouble for the hotel staff. They were quite clear that he would be locked in his room and fed meals by the staff. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting. I think a lot of people go to North Korea, especially I would, I'll say some Americans in particular, and they feel this need to like debate the people on the ground about political issues or to sort of like defend the version of history that, I mean, the, honestly, the Americans are usually correct about history because we have access to more information. But it's really hard when you're there and you're hearing their side of things, which are usually, at best, they're incomplete. And at worst, sometimes they're just outright lies. It's very hard for a lot of people to just sit there patiently and sort of forgive them for that and just listen and try to appreciate why they believe what they believe. I have seen my fair share of tourists basically get into like fights with Koreans, especially the tour guides. And it never works. They never change their mind. They're not going to, even if they did agree with you, they're not going to say it out loud on a tour, right? So, yeah. Well, let me go to a gulag by agreeing with this point that you have. Like, no thanks. Exactly. What's sad about it, actually, is that you end up missing the more interesting point, which is, let me just understand what this person believes, why she arrived at the conclusion she arrived at, why the schooling she went through led her to believe these things, why she, you know, how do you think and how do you act when you don't have access to as much information? That's the more interesting thing. It's not about like telling her the truth or whatever. It's not going to change anything. But there's still every single trip, there was always somebody who did that, which I thought was interesting. But the other unfortunate thing about it is that it does damage the relationship with the tour guides and then it affects what you can do and what you're allowed to see. So I think on that first trip, Jordan and I went in there with such a, I don't know, I would say like an openness, right? Like we were there to learn and understand as opposed to like set the record straight with these people or derive some weird sense of satisfaction from telling them the truth and like blowing their minds with the reality or whatever. And if you do that, if you go in there with that openness, then your experience in North Korea is so wildly different. Like you will get to see things that other people don't get to see. You'll, you'll be allowed to take photos of things other people are not allowed to take photos of. And the best part is after hours when the day is done and you're sort of hanging out in the hotel and you're having a beer from one of like the breweries, <laughs> the beer that they produce in country, and that's a whole thing that they love. At the end of the day, when you're sitting there talking, they will start to open up to you in ways that you didn't expect if they feel safe with you. And that's where you get some of the most interesting insights. And we'll talk about that a little bit more in, in just a sec. Jordan, a lot of people ask us, is North Korea all fake? Like, is it all a front? Is it just a show for the outside world? What's your take on that after going there a few times? Sure. So before I get into that, if you have questions, there is a question button in the stereo app if you're listening to us live. And if you're not listening to us live, you can catch us live Fridays during November at 2 p.m. Pacific. Go to the Android or iOS app store and download the stereo app. And we broadcast these stereo Sundays. These are live on Fridays, confusingly, at 2 p.m. And they, of course, air in the Jordan Harbinger Show podcast feed on Sundays as stereo Sundays. So Yes, we do a lot of interesting things while we're there. A lot of it's touristy, as you might expect. But of course, it's all very bizarre and different because it's in North Korea. But yeah, a lot of people think North Korea is all fake, like it's the Truman Show. If you remember that movie where the whole world was constructed and it's a big Potemkin village, and some people think it's all real and that there's no artifice going on. I don't really know how many people like that there are. There were definitely people on our tour that were like, oh, the place is fine. And I was like, dude, We've gone to six museums. Do you live in a museum? Do you see, you know, like when you're looking out the Yangokto revolving restaurant and you see people living in decrepit buildings and alleys and stuff like that, like with broken down machinery, that's probably where most people live. And this is the main capital city. Come on. So the truth is that it's both, which is actually even more bizarre. It's actually both artificial and so some is real and some is fake. And it's like part of everyone's lives in North Korea is about keeping up appearances and putting on a show to some degree, especially when there are tourists around. Absolutely. I found that when we went, when we were driving from place to place, one of our tricks, one of my tricks, I should say, was I'd go, I have to pee really bad. Anybody else? And like you or one of the other guys on the tour who was in on my trick would go, yeah, I got to pee so bad. And they'd go like, Ugh, all right, fine. And we'd pull over near some village and we'd all get out and go to the bathroom. And you would see these farmers or these people working in a field or something like that. And they would just look at us and then they would just leave the area most of the time, not always. Sometimes there'd be a group of women just resting in a field and they would just stare at us and giggle and push one of them to come and talk to us. And they would never would because they're so shy. They never see foreigners, usually in their entire life and not even on television. So you're basically an alien. But a lot of the things that were fake and, and that were a front that were also just bizarre were 
remember Gabriel going to the bookstore and you knock on the door and the woman comes out in a jacket, unlocks the door, turns the lights on and clearly is like just been napping. Yes. And like the store is not open. Totally. She's just like, oh, I got to open for tourists. Uh, okay. And so like the, the lights are on. There's no heat. Right. There's no running water. Like I've used the I always ask to use the bathroom everywhere that we go <laughs> that so that trick. I can walk through it. And they're always like, oh, fine. It's like almost always no running water, nothing. It's just a wild. What have you seen? There are lots of little examples like that. And they're some of my favorite moments because it's almost when you like putting your hand through the mirror and realizing that you're kind of in this like alternate reality where things are not quite what they seem. I remember when we were at the main art factory in Pyongyang, this is like a huge, huge sprawling factory compound kind of place where they produce all of the statues, the paintings, the murals for the entire country. All the political artwork that happens happens at this place. And in this place, they always take you to the ceramics department. I don't know if you remember this, Jordan. There's like a, a wing of this compound where they just make like vases and pots and stuff like that. And I remember there are always the same very, very young ceramists who are working on these detailed clay pots. But while they give you the tour and they explain to you how they work, these people are just like, they're sort of drawing on the pots with like these very fine writing implements, these little sticks that they draw on. And if you look closely, they're just tracing over the work that somebody else has already done. And once they wrap up the tour part, you know, and all the tourists leave the room and go down the hallway, you and I started doing this thing where we were like, oh, wait, I just want to see that real quick. And we would pop right back into the room like 20 seconds after we had left. And you would find the people like hanging out in corners of the room. and They would run back to the pots to try to, like, <laughs> you know, like pick up where they left off to make it look like they were really the ones who were working on. They weren't the ones who made the pots. They were just sort of extra hands to help around the compound, I guess. And part of their job, an aspect of their lives is pretending to be these artists who are making the things for our benefit. And those are the weird little things. It's not like those people are actors, like they're not paid full time to pretend to be that person. It's just an aspect of their jobs whenever someone comes around to do it. And I think that's what you meant by saying like, it's both, it's real and it's fake. And you see stuff like that everywhere. There's a department store, a very high-end department store. It's kind of like the Neiman Marcus of Beyond Yang. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> if you can sure. even compare it, it's their Neiman Marcus. And there's nobody in this department store, no matter what time of day you go, like I've never seen anybody there. And every time I've been in the store, the clerks at the checkout area are just ringing up goods for nobody. Mm -hmm. They just have a big batch of items and they're just scanning it through the thing. And you hear like the boop, 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 yeah. boop, boop, <laughs> you know, but I think they're just doing that to make the store look busy. And you can kind of tell the way they're doing it, that they're like, I don't know, this is annoying. I have to do this because there are Westerners around. So those are some of the more, I would say, the creepier moments, although it's not like in your face creepy. It's subtle. It's subtler creepy. This is something I thought was a good metaphor for North Korea, this element of North Korea, I should say, because I, I do. Have, look, I respect the people there. We've met a lot of great people there. I feel bad for the people that have to live there. They are essentially in a prison. But one time, and I don't remember where this was, some museum, surprise, surprise, I go to the bathroom, as I always do, <laughs> and I'm taking a leak in a urinal. And I hear like this water hitting the floor and I go, oh, is there a leak? And I look and I'm pissing in a urinal and the drain just drips onto the floor underneath the urinal. It doesn't go into the wall. It just drips on the floor. And then I'm go, oh, this one's broken. Let me switch. All of the urinals were just dripping onto the floor and then going down the drain in the center of the floor of this bathroom. Oh, beautiful. That was it. Yeah. And I was like, oh, they installed these and they don't have plumbing other than this drain which probably just runs outside. Well, so they just drip right onto the floor. But you have a urinal there, and I'm like, why? What is the point? <laughs> I mean, Jordan, they don't call it the people's paradise for nothing. You know <laughs> what I mean? There's a reason. Indeed. Indeed. <laughs> Does everybody believe what the regime tells them? Mm. I think that's a good question that a lot of people have about this. The short answer is no. You do hear murmurs of people. Like, I remember one of our foreign guides, so a British person, telling me that she, you know, they've gone to the country like hundreds of times at that point, working for these tour companies. And they'd, she'd said something like one of the guides who was very privileged, her father was like a general or something or a colonel. Once they were in the bathroom, you know, and they'd been hanging out over and over and over again, 50 plus times in the country. And she said something in the bathroom that was like, I really wish we didn't have all this Kim Jong-il stuff. We just want to be normal like the rest of the world. That's an offense for which you can absolutely go to prison wow. in North Korea. And she had mentioned that to our friend. And so that shows you that, look, she's privileged, so she's probably seen other countries in the outside world. But whenever you're around foreigners, you have to know 
and I've brought this up with our guides, you have to know that something is wrong. And I remember bringing this up to one of our guides and saying, you know that North Korea is very different. And she'd go, yeah, but we also know that you're privileged because you can travel. Okay, you got me on that one. But their idea of we're privileged so that we can travel is very different from theirs. I remember asking, do you think it's weird that you can't travel and that you can't get a passport? And she goes, no, well, the standard of living is not up to the standard where we are able to travel currently. That was like their answer, right? Mm, Non-answer. And I said, but we can travel. Don't you think that's weird? And she's like, well, you can, you're privileged. You're the upper class. That's not exactly true. I mean, in a technical sense, yes, maybe the people on these trips are in the top 50% or 60% of the United States that can travel and have a passport, but we're not diplomats, right? These aren't, none of the Rothschilds were on the trip with us. You know, you don't have to be a millionaire to fly to China and go to North Korea. You really don't. And that's kind of the idea that they had, which is that they're only viewing us as like these top 0.1 percenters, because in North Korea, nobody you know has ever left the country. And if they have, they went to China for two days and they came straight home and they never left the hotel. I met one North Korean guide. She had been to China and I said, what'd you do there? And she said, oh, we had a meeting. I never left the hotel. And I'm like, are you even telling me the truth? And they drove there over a bridge or something like that. And, or maybe they had flown, I can't remember, but I remember her telling me she took the train. So I could be misremembering. She never left the hotel. What does that tell you? Either that you're so scared to leave the hotel or that you're with government minders and you're simply not allowed to. And that's kind of where I was leaning with that one. It's interesting to see the mental gymnastics that they have to make to try to justify why they can't do very basic things that they know other people in other countries can do very easily. Mm-hmm. They sort of speak around it or they'll give odd justifications like, oh, you know, yeah, we can't travel and we can't get passports because our country really needs to preserve its resources for more important things. And it's mm-hmm. like, yeah, you going to Beijing is not going to affect your country's ability to engage in trade with Belgium. Like that has nothing to do with <laughs> anything. But in their minds, that's sort of like the party line that's been fed to them and they kind of parrot it back. And if you dig into that, if you ask a couple follow-up questions, you realize very quickly that they kind of know deep down or they know quite consciously and just can't get into it with you openly that there is something wrong. And that secret communication, that sort of like subtext that you have to listen to to understand how people actually feel, that is one of my favorite things about traveling there. And I don't mean to be flippant, I just mean that you don't really get to understand how people communicate or beat around the bush or try to tell you something without actually saying what they mean until you go to a country where they can't actually say what they mean. I remember there was one moment, Jordan, I don't know if I ever told you about this, but there was such an interesting moment that happened on on my last trip to North Korea. So this would be 2015, 2016, something like that. We were down at the demilitarized zone. So for anybody who doesn't know, this is a section of land that separates North Korea from South Korea. And it's the demilitarized zone that the two countries set up. It's kind of an, a hangover from the armistice of the Korean War. The armistice actually is one of the interesting things that the Korean War never actually ended. There's been no treaty. There's been no truce. It's just an armistice that says that both sides will stop fighting. So technically, the Korean War is still ongoing, which is kind of wild. (laughs) Every tour, most tours to North Korea will take you down there because historically, it's a very interesting site and they have a building set up where you can peer into South Korea and you can see the soldiers staring at each other across the, the demilitarized zone and you see the buildings where the armistice was signed. And in this building where they signed the armistice, there is a table with a felt tabletop and these two flags on one hand, a North Korean flag, and on the other hand, a UN flag that both sides signed when they signed the armistice. And there's a general, a Korean general there who is giving this tour. And he turned to our group and he's saying in Korean that the North Koreans had a lot of pride and they felt that they won. So they signed their own country's flag. But the Americans were so embarrassed by the defeat, so humiliated by the fact that they couldn't win, that they refused to sign their own flag. And so they signed a UN flag. So let's pause right there. That kind of story that I just shared with you is like, you hear that sort of thing in Korea all the time. Like they tend to read into details that probably don't have as much significance. Right. They spin it into a way to like show how their country really came out on top and it's amazing and how the imperialist dogs in America like had all this shame because they messed up the war. They're not entirely wrong. It was a pretty humiliating, terrible war, but I doubt that that flag had as much significance as that. But the reason I'm telling you this story is this. He's speaking in Korean. The tour guide who I spent the last seven days with or so is translating into English for our group. And when he gets to this part about the Americans signing the UN flag because they were so embarrassed, I was like, wait, wait, what? Like, did they really say that? And he's like, yeah. And she repeats it. He's like, you know, they had to sign the flag because they were so embarrassed they wouldn't do it on their own flag. 
And I just gave her a little look like kind of furrowed my brow and was like, really? And then she turns away from this like five-star general, <laughs> looks me in the eye, rolls her eyes and walks away. <laughs> in an ordinary so, circumstance, like if that happened in line at Starbucks in, in LA, you would just be like, whatever, that means nothing. People roll their eyes 20 times a day and there's plenty to be upset about, right? But in North Korea, for a licensed tour guide who grew up in the capital city, probably because her parents were well-connected to the party, who grew up pretty privileged, who has a lot at stake in keeping this job and keeping up appearances, for her to take a moment and signal to an American that she knows that that's bullshit is pretty wild. And it's those little facial gestures or a word here or there or a look or a dismissive glance. Those things tend to speak volumes. And usually that's the most meaningful information that you can take away from a conversation with somebody in North Korea. It might seem like you're misinterpreting this, but I assure you that there's a lot of little moments like this where we will see somebody or hear some story. And then later on the bus, I'm like, okay, look, Miss Yu, this just doesn't make sense. And she'll just start laughing because she's like, I know. <laughs> yeah, I know. Like, yes, yeah. we said that the ostrich farm is there to feed everyone. No, I've never eaten an ostrich. So then why do they have the ostrich farm? And she's like, I don't know. And she'll just start laughing. Yeah. Everyone knows that it's just such a load of crap. And you know what, Gabriel, what I'm seeing here is we could go on for a long time and we have a lot more. Let's do like a part two of North Korea next week because I want to get to these questions that are in yeah, that's the queue. One thing I want to leave off on before we do is why do people go along with this crap in North Korea? One, you go to prison if you don't. But if you live in Pyongyang, you're well off. You're going to buy into the system because it served you. You have a lot more to lose. And if you live in some tiny fishing village along the Tumen River by China with zero infrastructure and little food, not only have you not been indoctrinated nearly as much as somebody in Pyongyang, you know the government is failing you. Yes. Not only do you see it with your own eyes, but in addition, you might know people or you yourself may also smuggle contraband in from China. You might cross the frozen river and bring things. You might bribe soldiers to let you into China to come back with American movies and South Korean dramas on USB flash drives. You might even get cell phone service from a Chinese cell phone tower. Therefore, you can make phone calls and have the internet if you have a smuggled cell phone by some reason. So there's the official story that everyone tells about their country, even if they don't believe it. And the further away from Pyongyang you are and the closer you are to China, the more likely it is that you know that it's a bunch of crap. And they, they have a lot of leakage coming in from China, both information and goods. And that is very dangerous for the North Korean government. And they have a lot of problems with that. But I want to get into that next week. I want to talk more about elite North Koreans and North Korean comedy, the downsides, what we learned there. But I think we have to do that next week. Let's pop in our AirPods here for stereo and really get to some of these questions here. By the way, if you're listening to us on the Stereo app, great, we'd love to hear your questions in the question bubble down at the bottom of the app. If you're not listening, if you're listening in the feed on the Jordan Harbinger Show, go grab the Stereo app in the iOS app store or the Android store and come join us live Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific during the month of November and you can join us here live on the Stereo app and you can ask questions. When it comes to North Korea, I think you have to listen to what most of the North Koreans talk about when they have uh, ran to South Korea. It is a poverty country. They have no freedom. They get arrested just by having anything that resembles the Western countries. And the dictator pretty much tells them what to believe, when to believe, and they have to do and what they're told or else they get put in either work camps or get killed. Uh, yeah, I mean, you're fairly accurate. Gabe, you want to take that one? No, I mean, I think you're right. I think the best source of information we have about what North Korean life is actually like is listening to defectors. They have stories to tell that are incredibly rich in detail. They're brave. They're, um, they've seen things on the ground that journalists can't access. They know the truth about the country beyond the clever, you know, exterior that they project to outside people, like the version of the country that they try to tell to people like us, basically. And there have been amazing books written about defectors by defectors, and the stories that they tell are, are just incredible. So yeah, I agree with you. I think their stories are, are very meaningful, and they're probably some of the most important. 
I don't know if you were bringing that up because you felt like we were defending it or dismissing it. We weren't doing either of those things. But I agree with you. The people who leave, people like Charles Rue, who Jordan and I had on the show uh, in an amazing, I believe it was a two-part episode, right, Jordan? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was a fairly long. Yeah, it was a long one. They just told incredible stories that really like pull back the curtain. So I'm with you, man. And if you're curious about that, I would definitely go check out that episode. Hi, Jordan and Gabriel. It's uh, Sepp here. Just wanted to thank you guys for doing the stereo session. It's uh very nice to listen to you guys live. I had a question about uh, Iran for you guys. Um, now, I know you guys haven't been there, at least as far as I know. But uh, having been to Korea several times, what is your take on, like, if you were to have an outside opinion about Iran, what would you think? Because I feel like Iran is also subject to a lot of the blind journalism that North Korea gets. But it's a little more open. Of course, it's not as uh, secluded. And uh, the population is very young. They uh, they go out of the country a lot and come back and bring ideas. But I want to know, as like outsiders who have experienced a closed culture, what is your take on Iran? Like, what do you think when you hear the name? Uh, I think he ran out of time. So I almost went to Iran in 2010. And it's a huge regret that I didn't go. I skipped it for a speaking event that ended up, they like failed to promote it. And there were like four people there. I was super pissed because I gave up this trip to Iran. And now you really shouldn't go if you're a foreign tourist to Iran. It's from what I understand. I would love to go there. I think it probably is subject to a lot of that negative. I don't want to say bias necessarily, but slant of reporting because the governments are enemies, the, the Western government and the government of Iran is essentially an enemy of the West and of a free society. However, most Iranians that I know who travel are like, ugh, we live in this theocracy. It's ridiculous. I don't understand why it has to be this way. And a lot of people have had family and friends that have fled. I do occasionally online talk to Iranians that are, love their theocracy, but I almost feel like those people are the shills that get paid, like how China has the ultra-nationalist 50-cent army that just posts comments everywhere. Because I find a lot of the same the super pro-government Iranians are almost constantly posting on YouTube videos, and they're really inflammatory. I'm not saying they're not real people, but I'm saying that a lot of that seems a little sketch. I think most Iranians who live in Iran have that I've talked to happen to have a much more nuanced opinion of what Iran is like and why the government is not great. And they tell me things like, yeah, there's parties and drinking, and yes, you can go out with women, but then you kind of don't do it super publicly because there are religious police and everyone hates them. It's obviously not true that everyone hates the religious police. It's just true that the people in the cities who are educated think that those people live in the Stone Age because they do. And if you live in a random village in the middle of nowhere, you probably think, oh, good. Now everybody in the country is sort of forced to be at the same level as me. Iran's a tragic place because from what I understand, it's being sort of forcibly kept behind, not only by the rest of the world, but by the government that runs it because that's how they maintain power. So that place to me is fascinating. I really wish I'd gone there when I had the chance. Jordan, Gabriel, is there anything that you think that the Western world can take away from North Korea? Were there any devices or attitudes? Um, it does sound like hell on earth, but um, anything that we could actually benefit from? Great question. Gabe, what do you think? You know, the first thing that comes to mind is that for all of the country's weaknesses and for all of the country's sadness and tragedy, the people who live there are, for the most part, really remarkable human beings. They are mostly kind, deeply, deeply kind. They're really cool. They're patient. They're loving. Their understanding of friendship is almost quaint because it hasn't been influenced by social media and Facebook and Twitter. And they don't have 5,000 friends. They have two good ones. You know, they're close with their families. Like, it's a weird thing that when you grow up in a place like this that holds you back in so many ways, in other ways, I do think you get to hang on to certain values that we have just, if we haven't lost them completely, it's just a struggle for us to hang on to them. That's what I take away from my time there, just like a certain intimacy and connection and like patience that most people in the rest of the world don't seem to have, including me. When I left North Korea, I did try to take a little bit of that back into my own life. And I, it's, I struggle to hang on to it, but I do try to to hang on to that a little bit, because I think it's special. What do you think, Jordan? Was there anything else? I think that was a solid answer. We have a lot of questions coming in, so I'm going to get to the next one here. Hey, Joel. guys, I appreciate y'all giving us insight on North Korea. I've been always curious as to how a country so secluded 
can operate. Um, so I don't know if you guys have any insight. How do they make their money? I mean, are there obviously through trade and so forth, but I don't think many countries are willing to do business with with them um, based on their views. And then also, um, I believe I saw like on YouTube, some guy, I think he's like Russian and he went to North Korea. It was, it was a dope um, documentary, but he pointed out that some of the buildings, even though they looked beautiful, they weren't structurally, like they weren't actual buildings that supported people. Like the floors or windows were just windows that didn't really reflect rooms and so forth. So I don't know if you guys saw any of that and could talk about it. Thanks, guys. So, Gabe, I think what he's talking about is probably that 110-story building that doesn't actually support an elevator and isn't really built. There's a huge building. I can't remember exactly what it was, but at the time, it was the tallest building either in the world or in Asia. It's long since been eclipsed. You're thinking of the the Ryugyong Hotel. Yeah, yeah. And and like there's that pyramid shaped skyscraper. Correct. And it's been airbrushed out of many skyline photos of Pyongyang because it was shameful. And Egypt Telecom, I believe, they came in and built a cellular network in North Korea. And part of the agreement was they had to quote unquote finish that building. And so what they did is they they put an exterior on that giant concrete hulk. And then they threw windows in there to make it look like it's something. And I believe you can go up to like the first, second or third floor. But I don't really think it's a good idea to do that because there's a lot of talk about how that building was never finished, isn't structurally sound, could collapse, possibly not, uh, you know, very safe. So there's a few buildings like that, I'm sure. But that's the main one that he was probably talking about in the documentary. Am I missing anything, Gabe? No, that's right. As for the other question about like, how does North Korea actually make money? That is a fascinating and complicated Mm. question. And if you're interested, there are a couple of really great docs. You could find them on YouTube or on Netflix about the North Korean economy. People have tried to figure out how they're making money. And we probably don't have enough time to get into all of it here. But I will give you some of the cliff notes. One of them is that, first of all, North Korea, since its inception, has been subsidized first by the Soviet Union, and then when the Soviet Union collapsed, primarily by China. And the subsidies come in the form of you know, very, very cheap oil, free or very inexpensive food. Any goods that they need basically come from a handful of countries, and China is probably the biggest trading partner, and they give them ridiculously good rates. Now, in the last few years, China has changed its policy, so it's not as easy for North Korea to skate by in that way. But all the the rest of the money that they make, I mean, the GDP of North Korea was, I want to say it was in the 20 billions. It was like $28 billion, basically. So compared to other countries, it's pitifully small, and they make a tiny bit of money within the country. And so the big question that a lot of people ask is, you know, where are they actually getting all the money to fund their nuclear program to keep the government going when sanctions are levied against them? How do they keep the lights on? And it turns out that they are engaged in a whole bunch of like, very shady, dark businesses. If the experts are to be believed, that's a lot of weapons manufacturing, and possibly even manufacturing of drugs. People say meth is one of the biggest exports. The reporting on that is interesting. There are people who know a lot more about it than we do, but I would Google North Korea exports, North Korea weapons, North Korea drugs, and see what comes up, and you'll figure out pretty quickly how North Korea is actually making its money. Yeah, it's a fun fact. If you're a diplomat from North Korea, you don't really get paid to be a diplomat. You have to self-fund. So a lot of diplomats from North Korea have been busted selling drugs, smuggling things into the country using diplomatic pouches, etc. Basically, they're not given money to run the diplomatic mission. They are put into, say, Australia, and then they have to smuggle heroin in or something like that in order to fund the diplomatic mission. So it's a giant mess. To say that North Korea is a essentially a big criminal syndicate is an understatement. All right, let's go to the next one. Hi, guys. Very big fan of the work you do. Very interested in seeing what else you guys create in the later future. But with relevance towards this, I was wondering how you guys feel about the certain people that have escaped or supposedly escaped um, North Korea and how other journalists have criticized their stories. I'm sure that there have been defector stories that turn out to be not totally true, turn out to be exaggerated. Certain details might not line up. I don't know. I think that's true of anybody who tells any story. So that's probably a huge challenge for journalists who are covering the country to figure out what's real. How do you verify somebody's story who said that they walked across the two men river 
into China and made their way over months and months and months and tried to get into South Korea? Like, how do you even call somebody who met them in the middle of the forest to verify that they were there at that time? I don't know. That's probably a, a challenge of any reporting. But um, I do think that a lot of the stories, especially in the book, Nothing to Envy, books like that, that are just so rich in detail that you couldn't make them up. So I think in, in most cases, people are probably telling the truth or very close to the truth. And the cases where somebody was out like, outright lying, I should say, are probably uh, the exception. All right. Next up. This is not so much a question as it is an observation. My observation is like when you're looking at these countries, I see that you're looking at it from a West, very Western view and standpoint, which to me seems very ethnocentric. And that is kind of an objection I have to some of the comments you've been making about both Iran and North Korea. Cool. I mean, I like open and free societies that don't torture their people to death for folding pictures of their leaders. Gabriel, do you have another take on that? I think it's pretty much the same. And um, we're telling stories as two Americans who went there. So it's hard for us to speak as anything other than Americans. But like I said, our goal in going there was to try to understand and open our eyes as much as possible. Mm -hmm. That's the spirit that we travel anywhere. Yeah, exactly. Without stepping into let's be woke and see how things go from their perspective. Ask somebody who's born into a concentration camp or is stuck in a concentration camp for folding money the wrong way. I mean, I don't really see any sort of way you can look at that that doesn't scream horrific things about the place that's doing it. Iran has plenty of people that love it and plenty of people that hate the government. But the difference is in the United States, if you don't like the government or any Western country, for that matter, you can go out and say something, you can form a political party and do something about it. In Iran, you will die if you do that. There are numerous, uh, numerous, numerous instances in which somebody who speaks out against Iran or even travels to the United States is executed after being forced to go back to the country, and their family is executed too. We don't do that in the West. And that makes us a better system of government. So if we want to talk about ethnocentric, yeah, I'm guilty. I think that free societies are better than closed ones. Next. Hey guys, so I wanted to ask, if I heard right, it sounds like you all actually felt pretty safe there because the rules were so explicit. Were there any times that you actually felt unsafe? Ooh, great question. Gabe, what do you think? Did you ever feel unsafe? I'm trying to think about moments where I felt unsafe. I honestly can't point to any of them. I think it's more a sense of like, if I acted out right now, something really terrible would happen to me. But there was never a sense of like, immediate danger or danger looking around the corner, huge risks we we're taking. There is one thing that I, I do remember we were driving. Jordan, do you remember when we were driving on our first trip with the, we were taking a bus down the Youth Hero Highway mm -hmm. and we came upon a traffic accident. There was a car that was jackknifed on the road. Mm -hmm. It was very bizarre because I think we had pulled up to this jackknifed truck probably 10 seconds after it had flipped. I mean, the guys in the truck were well, one of them wasn't climbing out. I think he was badly injured, possibly dead. But one of the other guys was climbing out of the truck. Like it had literally just happened. And there was nobody around for miles and miles and miles. And the bus that was driving us did not stop to help these guys. And when we asked our tour guide, like, hey, shouldn't we stop and like see if they're okay? He's like, no, 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 North Korea, everybody takes care of one another. Like it's going to be fine. They're going to be fine. And then we just kept driving on. And that's not, you know, something that put us in immediate danger, but it made me think about what happens to you in North Korea when you get into a scrape like that, and you're in the middle of freaking nowhere, and there's not like a call box on the side of the road or a police station nearby, and your cell phone might not get service. Like, what would happen if the bus tipped over, you know? So that's the only thing I can think of. But other than that, I don't remember being in any extreme danger. Yeah, that was freaky, because I remember them saying, the, the tour guide saying, no, 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 the police are on the way. And we said, what are you talking about? We're an hour away from wherever we last saw anything that would have police. And then they said, no, 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 the locals will take care of them. We're like, the locals? Look around. It's farmland for as far as we can see. There's mountains ahead of us. What locals are on the way? And I just remember seeing like the guy, there was one guy like on the hood of the car, just sort of like, I think that guy was dead. So that to me was weird. And then when we got back to the hotel and I tried to ask more about it, they were like, I don't remember. And I'm like, are you kidding me? You're just going to lie that you didn't see the dead body? And I let it go because it was so clear that they were like, bro, we're not dealing with this. Who knows what goes on? Maybe they have to report it or maybe they have to, maybe then there's responsibility for them just having been around that. I don't know. But they were really, really made damn sure that we just pretended like we didn't see that. And they pretended like they didn't see that. That was weird as hell. 
to this day, I'm like, why did they do that? I'm so thankful people stuck with us for this. I really want to do part two next time. Are you cool with that, Gabriel? I was going to do a different topic, but I think this is a fun one, and I think people are going to dig it. Look, we're going to be live next Friday at 2 p.m. Pacific. That's November 20th. We'll also be live on November 27th, Friday at 2 p.m. Pacific. Download the Stereo app for iOS or Android. Join us live next time if you're listening in the feed. Links to all of the people and things that we talked about will be in the website in the show notes as well. Please use our website links if you buy the books that we talked about or anything. Worksheets for this episode are in the show notes. Transcripts are in the show notes. There's going to be a video of this going up on our YouTube channel at jordanharbinger.com slash YouTube. I'm at Jordan Harbinger on both Twitter and Instagram. You can also hit me on LinkedIn. Gabe, where are you on social media? At Gabriel Mizrahi on Instagram and at Gabe Mizrahi on Twitter. We're teaching you how to connect with great people and manage relationships using systems and tiny habits over at our six-minute networking course, which is free over at jordanharbinger.com slash course. Dig the well before you get thirsty. Most of the guests on the show actually subscribe to the course and the newsletter, so come join us. You'll be in smart company. This show is created in association with Podcast One and my amazing team, including Jen Harbinger, Jay Sanderson, Robert Fogarty, Ian Baird, Millie Ocampo, Josh Ballard, and Gabe Mizrahi. Again, thanks to the Stereo app for letting us go live. Go to the App Store and download the Stereo app and join us next time. Remember, we rise by lifting others. The fee for this show is that you share it with friends when you find something useful or interesting. If you know somebody interested in North Korea or crazy travel stories, please share this episode with them. Hopefully you find something great in every episode of the show, so please share the show with those you care about. In the meantime, do your best to apply what you hear on the show so you can live what you listen, and we'll see you next time. I wanted to give you a preview of one of my favorite stories from an earlier episode of the show with Jonna Mendez. She was the chief of disguise for the CIA in Moscow during the latter part of the Cold War. We really get into the weeds on how they hid people and hid spy gear in one of the most hostile espionage environments anywhere in the world. We invented technology that didn't even exist yet. The small batteries, for instance, they're in our watches and our phones and all of that stuff today. They're kind of like Q from James Bond, but it's the CIA. We could create any kind of character over your face. Masks that came out of Hollywood. We'd say, great, go down to the cafeteria and have lunch. This is at CIA headquarters where everybody mm-hmm. knows everybody in the cafeteria. And they would go and discover that no one paid any attention to them. You go, wow, I'm hiding in plain sight. They were following us just every minute. The case officer would step out of the car. The driver would hit a button. This dummy would pop up wearing the same clothes as the guy that had just left. Trailing surveillance would come around the corner and they'd follow that car all night. They never knew. And if they could get to those people, they would execute them. They were feeding people into these crematoriums, feet first, alive. Unbelievable. A really valuable agent said, I'll work for you on one condition, and that is that you give me the ability to take my own life. Eventually, everybody got arrested. So they arrested him. And we had put that L pill we gave him in the cap of the Mont Blanc pen. It was cyanide, and he knew where it was. And they said, we want you to write your confession. So they brought him his Mont Blanc pen. For more with Jonna Mendez, including some incredible spy stories that will really perk your ears, check out episode 344 of The Jordan Harbinger Show.